0: Welcome to this podcast from the Bay Church. We hope you're blessed by the message. To find out more, please visit our website at Uh, www.the-bay-church.org.uk You know, we're kind of on a passing through kind of thing, but we just, we had such a good time with y'all the last time we're here, we just didn't want to miss it. (laughs) And uh, just met all kinds of new friends and Made new enemies. It's all kinds. Of <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully, not too awful many enemies. There we go. I wanna, wanna talk to you tonight. Uh, I'm gonna talk to you tonight just a little bit from from Psalm 105, and uh, and and I'm gonna. Di- uh, I, I just feel like I wanna kind of st- kind of stay a little bit on the vein that we started with this morning, but I wanna take it to. A, a bit of another place. And I've been, at, I really asked the Lord, Lord, don't let this just be a, a, a sermonette for the Christianettes. <laughs> I, I, I ask the Lord to let this be a, a, a day that is an assignment with Him, that the day has been chosen and so have we that are here. And it, because uh, we, I don't know about y'all, but I'm not just signing up for more church services and more meetings just to be in more meetings, you know? Uh, I, in 45 years, I've about been meeting t- to death. <laughs> so, uh, so that, you know that's that's I'm not looking for, for another meeting, but I am looking for a meeting. Yeah. Uh, I, want, I this is a time that I believe is set us set aside by the Lord for something to happen in our lives tonight, that we could never uh, that we could never experience in Him unless we were here. I I want to treat my life like that. In other words, let's live our lives intentionally. And uh, and Psalm 105 105, um, uh, says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, and make known his deeds among the people. And then it goes on to say, sing unto him. And then it says, sing psalms unto him. Now, that that word sing is that word that we talked about uh, the last time I was here, I talked about... Uh, you know, the biblical uh, understanding of sing and man's understanding of sing is two different things. This word is that word shira, which means to walk about as a strolling minstrel carrying the sound of who you are, changing atmospheres with the intent of your heart. What's in you changing atmospheres. That's singing. That's not uh uh. uh. We Man tells you that's, that's singing. Now it says sing unto him and then it says sing psalms unto uh, unto him now that's a little different thing there because anytime you see that there's two compound phrases which says sing psalms or sing praises uh, that is that's a compound word which is the word zamar and that's the hebrew idea of to pluck or twang the strings of an instrument and so what happens is you have an instrument that has become an extension of your expressed creativity and intent and de- and desire. So you're you're t- you're actually touching the strings. And in those days, uh, David, of course, set it into being. In those days, that you that the harpists, the one who would carry these harps and played, there was four different kinds of harps. One of them was a kinner. And the kenner was to be played. It had these little pieces of metal and stone and rock and everything tied around the edges of the strings. And the kenner was the instrument that was meant to express joy. And so it had a percussive rattling kind of a sound, like a snare on a harp. And these little things would rattle like that. But the strings were made of the upper belly of the sheep gut. And it was the sheep that had already been designated to be the sacrificial lambs. So when the hand would touch the strings that was designed and set apart, already intended by God to be used as sacrifice, and this is one of the reasons, see, David was doing some crazily innovative kind of things. That's one of the reasons that he knew that, Lord, you know if a lamb or a turtle dove or a bullock, you know, if that's what you desired of me, you know, that's what I I would give but I know that you are desiring the praise of my lips, the fruit of my lips, which is the praise of my mouth. And so he w- began to, He was the first one to realize the supernatural realm as it was connected to music and actually began to cause it to be a part of the culture of Israel. Now prior to that, that had some supernatural things happen, but I don't think they ever put it together. I think God used David to be the one sensitive enough to put it all together because that's why he would be the one to implement what would be called songs of deliverance. Hmm. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And y'all remember what songs of deliverance are? That's where he's singing the songs of what, what Deborah did and what Joshua did, the sounds that they released. He's remembering what happened with Miriam. And he's accessing, so he's looking back, he's honoring that past, reaching back with one hand in honor, you reach with the other hand in promise. So his generation was the one who shifted all of the, uh, all of the understanding of music and dance and creativity and, uh, uh, and, 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 and basically set up a, a generation for thir- where a song lasted for 33 years. These numbers were added later. It was a constant flow of Lyric, language, creativity, life, dance. Uh, every, every way that was possible to acknowledge God and, and in the beauty of his holiness, for example. When we praised him in the beauty of his holiness, that, that had to do with garments and the colors that were used. It had to do with a whole language that wouldn't, couldn't have been completely understood at the time. They were responding to what he was carrying, because he really had what would have been one that would have been chosen. Now, in and in, in in cultures, and nations, and peoples after that, even they would access some of these beliefs, uh, even though they didn't have Bibles. There was this there was a supernatural connection to creation that, that even David honored. You know, he would uh, he gave he deputized a whole generation to lead creation and worship. That's why everybody's language say, praise him, sun, praise him, moon, praise him, stars, praise him, grass of the field. And then they would give lyric as all of creation was reflecting his glory and declaring his glory. Imagine you are the worship leaders of the sea here. What if, what if we were the ones to find the sound of the song of many waters and allow that to be something that connects us, not with some bunch of new age stuff? But uh, realize that, that this place is speci- so special in God's heart that he lets us lead it in worship yeah. and create an atmosphere to make the, the peoples know the gr- mighty deeds of God. <laughs> See, in some of the, the old, old cultures, for instance, uh, even in this area, some of the old cultural things that were known back in the day would be things like uh, when a like the, like the Celtic peoples, for example, the Christian, Celtic Christian Christianity, they believed that birds were carried the sound of heaven. That's why they sing. They believe every bird got a note from heaven and were carried into this realm. And now, you know, that sounds kind of cool, but I, but the fact is, and, and they would land on the trees and they would begin to sing the song. And they would know that, that the birds are carrying the sound of heaven and the trees are responding to the sound of heaven. Therefore, they stand. They live in the light. They reach toward heaven and they dance with the wind. Yeah. And because the sound or the song of heaven is being sung to the trees, it cause, that's what causes the tree to continually reach toward heaven. So, that fork right there, where we just saw that bird setting, we're going to turn that into a harp. And they would cut that, cut that fork in such a way that that would become a harp. And like in David's day, then they would, they would, they would add the strings to it so, that's, so, so we could be a part of the song of nature, honoring and blessing God. That, and, and David implemented a lot of things like that. And then somewhere down the line, it starts becoming poisoned. Even around the idea that we forgot what singing was. We don't know what. And and that's one of the reasons. One of the messages that I feel is the message, message of my life is if we can just change the way that the church understands worship and music, we'll change the way the world encounters God. What, what if we what if we embrace creativity from the creator's perspective? Rather than a building identities for us, what about it building <laughs> enthronement for him? And let him enthrone himself upon the praises of his people. And that's that word praise there is the word tahila. He's gonna enthrone or uh, uh, enthrone himself or inhabit the tehillah, the spontaneous song of the spirit. As we're lauding and declaring his mighty deeds and greatness in our life, we've created an atmosphere where God... And look at, look at the times in history where, like in places where they, they wouldn't have had theology, they had God. So they would walk um, uh, uh, with, with God in creation, and they would hear, hear the, the birds sing and the beauty of the land and so on, and that would become a part of... A symphony that, they, that, that humanity then would join in worship. And then, the, of course, the poets that would capture that. You know, the, the, the moment, a, a moment in God is best remembered if you give it a melody. Mm-hmm. So when you have those moments in your life yes. that are signature sounds, revelations, like the gold, that'll now, that's now a song. There's there's a vase or a being, being poor. something seen in the spirit realm. Now becomes a song. They be, and it became our song. You know what we were doing? Agreeing with, and that's the word symphonia where two or more agree. Well, there's more than two, and we begin to agree melodically. And and see that's that's how music evolved in the day, in the day of days of David and beyond. Um, now. Here's what God was looking for all along. And when we think of ourselves as being those that are chosen in this generation to be a praise in the earth, isn't that amazing? I mean, we are chosen in our generation to be a praise in the earth. A place of enthronement for the presence of God in the earth. And look at the many ways that's lived out. But here's, here's, what, here's basically the foundation of it all. I will, God says, I will be your God. You will be my people, and I'll be in your midst. That's what God's still looking for. He wants to be our God. He wants to, us to be his people. He wants to be in our midst. He really, it's not nearly as complicated. The whole, the whole message of the gospel is not nearly as complicated as we make it. The message of the gospel is God spends the first half of your life trying to get in your life, second half trying to get out. <laughs> it's a very simple thing, but we dress it up, up with all kinds of stuff. And when we oh give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, access his nature is really what, what's being spoken of there. When we call upon his name, uh, the word there, actually that word, name there, is acknowledge his reputation, acknowledge his nature, acknowledge, and memorialize it. So what we're doing is remembering the mighty deeds of God. When we're re- remembering it, what, uh, that is the word uh, that the once part of the band in those days of the musicians. Remember, I talked to you about their their job was just to capture. Uh, the words of David, when he would sing out of that spontaneous, creative place, their job. There was a whole group of them, 24-7, they were given to just capture the, the words and turn it, turn it into music. You know, seven times a day, he would break into song, and on those, during those seven times a day, these scribes following him around would, uh, and it's the word, zakar, So the Zamar and the Zachar people, they were a part of a generation that were designated to remember the mighty acts of God to the point that they would become melodic. And then they would sing of his wondrous works and sing of his mighty deeds. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk about his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face forevermore. And then look, here we go again. Remember His marvelous works that He's done. Remember His wonders. Remember the judgments of His mouth. And judgment in Scripture is not always that, that Greek idea of crisis or critical judgment. Judgments are just what God said about it. Just remember what God said about it. Remember what God thought about it. And then it goes, goes on to say, Oh, you seed of Abraham. He is, the Lord our, uh, uh, and he is the Lord our God, and His words or the, how He thinks about it, His judgments are in all of the earth. We have an opportunity as we access God, we have an opportunity to agree with what He says about the world and he, what He says about the politics, what He says about the economy, what He says about all the conditions in this world that are incredibly troubling I wonder what would happen if a people begin to sing his mighty acts into the next generation. Psalm 145 says, one generation shall praise. They used the, he, uh, they used the word praise there. But it says, one generation shall, sh-, it's actually the word shabak. You know what that is? One generation shall shout the mighty acts of God into the next generation. That's a powerful thought right there. That we uh, have actually been anointed, if you will, to shout the mighty acts of God, declare his wondrous works into the next generation. Where does this start? How does it work? How does it work on a real level, not just a preachy thing? <laughs> How does it work on a real level? I believe it works when, when, our, when, our, when our creativity, our novels, our poetry, our music, our movies, the things that we rise up as the people of God and begin to establish such high standards of excellence. In the house of the Lord, that the world turns their eyes to see the cutting edge innovation is going on in the house of the Lord. There was a time in history where, if you wanted to experience art and you wanted to experience beauty and you wanted to experience architecture and you wanted to experience, where would you go? You would go to church. You would go to the house of the Lord because those were the ones that were excelling in those things rather than giving it to the world and and standing over and criticizing what's going on in the world, they step up and they wrote the greater writings and the greater books and the greater poetry and the greater, but we, we gave it away. And now it's time for us to become the poets and the writers and the storytellers that we should have been all along. Why? Because we're chosen to carry his judgments and what he says. And, and I believe carry it with a, with a life-changing uh, uh, authority, an anointing, if you will. And uh, in, instead of uh, being the ones that are standing over, you, you know, you've, you've heard me say that uh, um, if you have a mission without a message, you'll always default to entertainment. And if you don't have the ability to entertain, your default will be criticism. So what we've done is we have stepped back and sometimes out of desperation, we just criticize the world that's changing in ways that we don't understand it. And it really is. The world change- sometimes the world is changing so fast we don't understand it and we consider it to be an enemy. But I, just, I, I, I think the church needs a wake-up call of some sort to say, wait a minute here. There, there is a sovereign, powerful, awesome, holy, wonderful, glorious God who is not intimidated by the darkness of heart of man, that's where his heart's at. His his heart is still for a lost and dying people that have all of their opinions of him now based upon the systems of this world, but they've never experienced the real thing. And I'll challenge anybody on earth to experience the glory of God and and go away unchanged. You cannot do that. And you know... the number one reason why people don't go to church is because they've already been. <laughs> and that's, a, that's, a, that's kind of a sad thing, isn't it? And, and here you, here's the thing. We'll all sit here t- tonight and we all agree on the kind of things that I'm talking about. But oh God, how can you change that? How can you change it? That I mean, there's people all over this room right now. We have hearts for our family, hearts for the critical situations they're going through, pain they're going through, and for the for the the, the, the things that that are being reflected in their life because they don't know God, and um, and 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 the things that are going on in this world that that will will break our heart, but we feel helpless to do anything about it. Well, I. I'm, I'm asking God to give us not answers, but the power to overwhelm the darkness that is invading and robbing people from the goodness of the, of, and the knowing of the glory of God. If, if, if he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people and he's going to be in our midst, it's not going to necessarily just look like church, is it? I think we're in a season right now where God is shifting things so that the, we live our lives bigger than church and we become the invaders of their world rather than the, uh, rather, rather than the opposite. Now, <clears throat> see, um, you know that old principle, some make waves and some ride the waves and some become the wave. Well, I, I believe either, either way you're blessed to experience the wonder and the beauty of the sea. But I think there's a, there is a whole new wave of God's glory coming to the churches today and to the house of God today, and it's going to wash a lot of stuff out and resort uh, humanity's understanding of who God is. Yeah. I mean, we were talking a bit about it this morning. What, what does it look like when, you sing, when you, there's a song in the house that no disease can live in? What, what happens when there's a song in the house That 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 not only does not forget his benefits, but uh, but releases his benefits of the presence of the Lord, and I think that's where we I I think that's where we got to go, guys. Uh, And I wanna I wanna share this with you. I believe that that there's a few things uh, that uh, that we're being we're being poised for right now. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, th- back in the, in, the, in the U.S., back in the 1800s, there was this guy, his name was Horace Kephart. And Horace was a, was a brilliant, uh, he was a highly educated man He lived up in the north somewhere. And uh, he, he had, I think it was Philadelphia or somewhere, he had become a, a librarian and a journalist. And so he wrote for a lot of papers and, and wrote a lot of articles and, and uh, famous writing, famous papers and stuff. Uh, so he was a big-time writer is what I'm trying to say. And uh, th- and then he became a librarian, brilliant, educated, academic kind of guy. And uh, then he got hired to move to Italy to build a library for some rich somebody. See, back in, back in the day, you know, we didn't, they didn't have Google and Internet and all the stuff to access information. So if you were going to be, be someone who was was alert to the times for which you were alive, you wanted to immerse yourself in history and culture. And one of the ways that you would do that is if you were a wealthy person, you would hire a librarian to come to your estate and build a library. And in that library, they would set it up with the Dewey Decimal System and so on. And so when you walked into your library, you could access any time in history or any of your favorite great writers, and over there's your Shakespeare section and so on. And, uh, and that was the way, that was family entertainment. And, and in the larger and more beautiful homes, they would also have, have chamber orchestras sitting around instead of, you know, flipping on, the, you know, your, your bows. Uh, why play your bows when you got four great musicians? And there's where you would find people like Haydn and, and Handel and people like that working on these estates, playing music, writing music in their job, Part of the day was to walk in the cool of the evening, if you will, through the meadows and so on, and p- live in such peace and solitude and connection to the land that you would access the song and the sound of the land, and you would bring that indoors then for those that evidently didn't want to go on a walk. So, <laughs> so anyway, so in those days, very different time to be alive, wasn't it? And uh, how many of you remember that? Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, that, so, so this fellow was hired to go to Italy and build this beautiful library, and he did. He came back to the U.S., and now he's working in St. Louis, building a museum. And uh, the more he was all wound up in this building, 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 building stuff, the pressure of his job, over, really, he was overtaken by the pressures of it all, and he had a nervous breakdown. His life was falling apart. His father came and basically took him back home, and he said... He, he said father if you could just get me to the just let me go away to the closest place i can be and just find solitude and just like recalibrate my life and sure enough that was he was in dayton ohio area and so basically he escaped down into the appalachian mountains but in the appalachian mountains that's where you find all the hillbillies <laughs> and you know you know what a hillbilly is you know it's, Actually, get it from Hill William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland. Your guy gave us our name, hillbillies. And but down into the uh, down into the mountains, there he was, and he found solitude. He found beauty. He found rest. He found reconnection. But here's what the thing was: he would walk, and he'd walk along the creeks, and they were so beautiful to him that he had to write about them. Why? Because what do writers do? Writers write there's writers all over this room and the world does not give you permission to write you're writers it's there's something comes most alive in you when you do what you were created to do and you're a writer sometimes you just need permission to go ahead and drink from that from that the chalice of your own imagination and become the writer that you're born to be but it doesn't feel it feels gratifying to the heart but let's get real No, let's get real, become that, and that's what he did. Because when he got into that, now here comes the big coal barons that are coming to; they want to strip the land. Here comes the timber barons, want to take all the timber. Here comes the railroad barons; they're going to run railroad through. But what had happened is, is Horace Kephart, he was there meeting hillbillies, moonshiners, bear hunters, and he would write about the bear hunters, the bear fighters. And I don't know if you know it or not, but when you ever get into a fight with a bear, just remember he's a southpaw. You always f- fight him like a southpaw and you'll have a better chance, just letting you know. <laughs> and in the mountains of Kentucky and, and, and Tennessee and over, over in there where I'm from, you'll also know that, uh, that if a bear ever gets after you never run uphill. He's got the motor in the back. He'll get you. <laughs> but they have to go downhill slow because of the big motor in the back. So if you're going to run from a bear, run downhill. And I noticed you know, write that down. You may need that. <laughs> another thing, and he would write about the moonshine and the recipes. And, of course, moonshine came in to us, to, to us over there. From, over in Ireland, they called it poteen. They just made it with taters. Over there, over at our place, they made it with corn. But it was just the same recipe, and that was some of those wonderful Scots-Irish folks that brought us that wonderful nectar that kept us crazy for it all. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> and the, but he would, but he would, he met these people, and felt, and he fell so in love with the uniqueness of this hidden, isolated culture. And why were they isolated? Because they had come from the Scottish and the Irish planters, and they were Ulster Scots, and they were carrying sounds and songs they were carrying music, and they were carrying a connection to land, and they had been displaced by all the horrors of what had happened in their land over generation and generation after generation. And now they had found a place that they had isolated themselves away in the beauty of the Appalachian Mountains, where the purest Elizabethan English known anywhere in the earth is still spoken today, far purer than the Elizabethan English spoken in England, because those isolated cultures never progressed like yours did. And we still say things like yens and ye and all that. How are ye? Well, yeah, and anyway, I don't want to get into a whole bunch of semantics there with you. But, but the language even was captured there. And he saw the wonder of this culture. And he began to write about it from a place of falling in love with this, this hidden culture. And so then when all the timber barons and the railroad barons and everybody came in to destroy and devour this culture no you won't either why because one writer had written it with such beauty and such honor and such respect that everybody had fallen in love with it because the way he described it and now no one had access to it so they established a a national park the most visited national park anywhere in our country now because one writer valued and honored and respected something that he had found. And until this day, his writings are still known to be the one. Now think about this. Now look how the world has changed so dramatically that now Christianity is thrown away in the idiot box. And at best, all we've been able to come up with are theologians that try in some academic platform to build an appreciation for another religion but it's one of the many but this is the one that screwed the whole world up but let me tell you now look what see how complicated this become what if there's a bunch of people experiencing the beauty and the wonder of Jesus and out of their lives became tales of the great the, of the mighty deeds and the wonder of the one who lives in their midst and what if we started carrying the songs of healing what if we carry, started carrying the remembering his marvelous works and his mighty acts? And we started becoming the storytellers of a generation. Now, what would happen? You know, in a few times in history, you will find these people that seemed like God put the signature of his heart on their life, and they would rise right up out of the culture and speak, a go- speak the gospel and live the gospel and reveal the nature of who Jesus was in such a way. That it would create create entire cultures being changed by their words. Like this morning, talking about George Whitfield would have been one of them. Charles Spurgeon would have been one of them. You know what what was the success of Charles Spurgeon? He didn't sound like a preacher. And he and therefore he was named the Prince of Preachers. The Prince of Preachers. He was separated out of the pack because it wasn't about a funeral frock coat and, and oh God's name did not have four syllables. Bless God, duh. He didn't have any of, any of that religious pretense around him or anything else. He stepped up and he spoke out of the beauty of the presence of God in his life. But why? Because God says, I'll be, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and I'll be in your midst. And what he did is he was able to describe out of his own creative process and the beauty of a real Holy Spirit working in his life, he lived out his passion, and so all all the and, and look at the things he had to walk through to do that, horrible things. Uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but but uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon lived every day of his life dealing with morbid depression, and in church today we don't even get to admit things like that because we won't be religious enough. If, Well, you know, get ready to pray. We all got answers, but we don't know what people have been through. We always want to throw them in the box of not being full of faith and full of, well, if you're a Christian, you're full of joy. Christians don't even know how to be alone anymore without being lonely. We don't even know how to be alone in the presence of the Lord. We don't know how how to, and and, and so we hang these un- un unsanctified intentions wrapped around religious ideas. But there you had a guy that, you know, do do y'all know why he suffered such depression? It's because here's the most powerful voice in his day. And one day, and just a little guy from a little one out house town in England who had an encounter with God, and suddenly he's asked to, I told y'all the story, you know, he's asked to, and his church went from about, 12 old people and their parents exploded into 6,000. And when he walked into the pulpit one day, somebody hollered, fire! Some knucklehead in the balcony, you know, some smart aleck. And and when he he screamed fire, there was a stampede and six people died. And from that day forward, the trauma of what that young man suffered in his own heart knowing that six people that he loved and many injured and some of them maimed for the rest of their life that tragedy every he said every time he would step into the pulpit he would have to deal with that and he would have to rise above the horrible thoughts of what had happened if folks there's a lot there's a lot of pain in this world and um but he he rose above it because of the because of the, the 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 intent of his heart was to conquer that thing and so, he, so, you know, and on some level he did, but he fought with it all, all, all through his life. But, but what, uh, what, made, what made him be who he was is the fact that he never lost sight of the beauty of who God was. And you know what? You know the person that was his hero? It was a guy named John Bunyan. And he preached, and he preached, and, and, and Charles Spurgeon preached this. And, and he, he would say things like, the day that John Bunyan looked through and saw the starry night. And now, what, what Spurgeon, you know, I was talking about this morning, that one hole, that he could see the stars at night. And there he wrote Pilgrim's Progress from that place. Twelve years in that dank place. Writing the beauty of who Jesus was through the imagination. That's amazing. And still, until this day, the 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 most published piece of literature in publishing history, besides the Bible, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And now, and then Charles Spurgeon got a hold of that, and then D. L. Moody got a hold of that, and they're all looking back to the dark day. Did I ever tell you the end of that story? Charles Spurgeon also, when he he was preaching, uh, he would preach with such beauty that there was an artist. I mean, there was a guy that came who, uh, who became a missionary. He got saved under Charles Spurgeon because he had never heard anyone speak of Jesus with such beauty and the heavens with such glory and so on. So this Spurgeon was basically a poet. And he painted the wonder of who Jesus was. And that's what caused this young man to get saved. And he said his goal in life was to preach the beauty of God the way Charles Spurgeon did. So he became a missionary. I told you about that, didn't I? He became a missionary, went off to Belgium and failed as a missionary and came back as a failure and ultimately wound up in an insane asylum, but he found his voice when he picked up a paintbrush and he began to paint. His name was Vincent Van Gogh. A failed missionary, but when he found his voice and sadly, though, he would hold the brush in his mouth and meditate for hours sometimes, and that paint had lead in it, and it caused him to go completely insane. And, uh, and then he, but he was remembering what Spurgeon had preached, Starry, uh, starry Night, and then a hundred years later, after Van Gogh's painting, there was a fellow named Don McLean <laughs> sitting on a campus, read the story. And he wrote a song, Starry, Starry Night. Remember the song Vincent, it was? <clears throat> That's who he was talking about. And, uh, and uh, with no hope, when no hope was left inside, on that starry, starry night, you took your life as lovers often do. I could have told you, Vincent, this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. And it was the, it, now, where did this starry night thing come from? In the sixteen hundreds, a fellow named John Bunyan, looking out a hole and seeing a star, that resonated the beauty of who God was, and he began to write. What in the world? Tell of His wondrous works and His mighty deeds and these glorious acts that God has performed. What was He doing? He yeah, and I said it this morning. See. The reason he, John Bunyan, was in prison is because he thought he was called to preach, but he was actually created to change the world, and he changed the world generation after generation after generation. And now you can look back and watch the wonder of what God did. There's a fellow named. Uh, well, <clears throat> now, but, but, I'm a, uh, s- sorry, I'm a storyteller. I can, what can I say? I'll tell you 15 more if you're not careful. So, but. Uh, but well, dismissed. what did you say? You're dismissed. Okay, I'll. Do. Is that what she said? She said we're listening. Oh, oh, we're listening. I thought she said you're dismissed. Okay, <laughs> I'm out of here. But, but you know, right, rather than lining up uh, our lives around lists, to-dos, and and uh, requirements and restrictions. You know, what if it was not about restriction lists? What if it was about lyric? What if it was about, like with David, his whole thing was he led from a place of language for accessing God and telling of his wondrous works and singing his awesome praises. That's what he lived for because he had found Jesus, he had found Jesus in his own being. What in the world are you talking about now? There were covenant promises that had been set in motion because God says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I'll be in your midst. And he sung songs about salvation, songs about healing, the things that would only be realized because the son of David would one day be born because he had set songs and promises, prayers and prophecies in motion release them into atmospheres that would carry down through the generations. And I think that's not just about people like David in the Bible. That's about people like John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody and and Sam Jones and people like that. How many of you have ever heard of Sam Jones? I keep wanting to get back to the message here, but I just got so many things I want to tell you. Okay, but anyway. So... Can I tell you who sent? All right, let's. Good. Let's just leave that right there. I'll preach that in Scotland. I'm on the way. Uh, let's all go to Scotland. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't that be fun if we could just load the whole gang up? Let's get on a boat. You got a boat out here? Somebody bring us a boat. Yeah. I'll, who will do the paddling? <laughs> We'll, we'll paddle up to Scotland, and, and uh, well, that's a beautiful place, and I'll, be I'll, I'll be on Iona in a few days. Ooh, wow, yeah. yeah, and y'all ain't going. <laughs> 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 it, w- w- wouldn't it be fun to do some of that? T- uh, that's what we, we do that in Wales. I go to Wales, and, and we do revival history tours. go to all of the, the, the old churches where the significant things happened wow. during the Welsh wow. revival, and teach... Christianity and the, uh, Christian history all the way back to the second century in Wales and all the way through. We do the big route, all the places and it's awesome. And, and you stand there and say, there's where Christmas Evans stood when he preached so and so. And right here's where you know, it's, it's uh, what a life uh, to, to get to be in a, anyway, I just love it. All right, quit it. There was a, uh, there was a Where's a good place to start? 1847, there were four baby boys that were born that so impacted the world that they made front-page news 100 years later. All of them born in 1847. One was Alexander Graham Bell, who gave us the telephone, you know, connected all of us. The way, the way we spoke to one another changed because he, was, he did what he was created to do. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, lit the world and caused us to see our world different. Number, th- number three, born 1847, Jesse James made front page news 100 years ago. I never talk about him, though, because he was Baptist. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm not saying a word. I'm just saying, because my granny always told me, don't you never talk about a Baptist. I said, okay, granny, I, I won't. Yeah. And I also I, I lived years in Nashville, Tennessee, where the, you where you are either Baptist or you're getting ready to move. You know? yes. And 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 they say you know the difference between a Baptist, a Methodist is like a Baptist that can read. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. and, 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 and 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 a Methodist is like a Baptist that got their brains kicked out. Standing too close to the back end of a Presbyterian mule. That's the, that's the. Now, th- now those, those are some of the sayings that came out of a guy's life named Sam Jones, who was the fourth baby boy born in 1847. He made front page news 100 years later. But uh, now, what made, what made Sam so unique is he was born in a little place called Oak Bowery, Alabama. In Oak Bowery, Alabama, there's nothing there today except nothing you just you just there's so much nothing there you can drive right through the nothingness and not even know you were there there is a little sign there it says oak bowery alabama and there's an old church that sits on the left if you're going south but other than that and then there's an old building it looks like what used to be a building and that's pretty much it but in that little place called oak bowery alabama he was born and at five years old and uh, uh, little Sam, he said when he was born, he was one of those little boys that's just full of wonder. It's like he was a circus in full swing. And he said, a big old black, deep black, black, pearl black eyes. And he was just, f- just full of wonder. And by the time he was five years old, there was a little one room schoolhouse there. And, 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 and every Friday, the teacher would have recitals. So all the students had an opportunity to sing a song or do a poem or whatever. Or do a speech, quote Shakespeare, because it was a one-room school all the way to high school, and he was the smallest one in the school. And so the teacher would he never let Sammy give a speech, though he always wanted to, because he's five years old. But then comes the day that Sammy's going to get to be a part of the recital, and all the parents are always there on Fridays, and <laughs> and on the front row here sits uh, Miss Queenie Porter Jones. There was Sammy. One, of the, her name is Queenie Porter. They called her Queenie because she carried herself in such a regal manner. And she's sitting there with a, with a funeral home fan in a hot one-room schoolhouse. I don't know if y'all have funeral home fans over here. But in the old days, you, of course, y'all don't even need fans over here because <laughs> you, you don't have heat over here. So, uh, But there she is, uh, sitting there, fanning herself, and, uh, and, uh, and little Sammy had fallen to sleep in her lap. It came his turn for his speech. So Mr. Slayton says, and next we have Sammy Jones. And so she shook Sammy awake, and Mr. Slayton came over and and picked him up and stood him up on the desk so everybody could be seen and heard, you know. And well, he's just waking up, and he wipes the sleep out of his eyes, and he straightens himself, and he says, you'd scarce expect to find one my age standing here speaking on this stage. But in coming years and thundering tones, the whole world will hear of Sam P. Jones. <laughs> five years old, he prophesied his own destiny at five years old. Now, we know many times that, you know, uh, s- seeds of destiny are watered by storms of adversity, don't we? And so not long after that, little Sammy's mother, the, the person he loved more than anybody else in the world, suddenly died in the middle of the night, and nobody knew why or how. She did, and, and so he's eight years old now, and the, his father, Captain John Jones, moves them back to Cartersville, Georgia to his parents and uh, to have help raising the kids. And, uh, and, le- and the whole family was just absolutely devastated uh, with that death, uh, of course. And, you know, sometimes, you know, grace uh, could be defined just by amazing grace is that grace that just gives you the, the ability to realize I can go on. And they went on. And uh, it, again, we, we want to put Christian concepts around grace. But sometimes it's just as simple as stand up and you go on. It's a divine infusion of God's enablement that allows us to get past the harshest seasons of our life sometimes. And grace means that we don't have to know and don't have to have the explanation. We don't have to understand yet because the journey is what will bring the understanding. And uh, because sometimes we get trapped in the days where we can't go on because we don't have the understanding. But, uh, and that's for somebody here, guys. Sometimes it's grace is just, you can go on. You understand when it's necessary to understand. And it's okay not to now. And, uh, but they went on. And, but, but Sammy, he was, he, you know, not, and the, one of the next tragedies you find is the Civil War breaks out. And he's a little, uh, he goes back there and his, his, his grandfather, uh, his name was Sam also, Samuel Gamble Jones, he was a local pastor. And his wife, uh, they prayed for Sammy all the time because Sammy would be in the circus in full swing. Well, when the Civil War broke out, uh, Sherman came to town to burn the town down, and of course, Sammy, he he being about 14 years old at that point, he will he, he, tell you what he, what Sam did one day. His father's up, pre- or his grandfather's up preaching in the pulpit, you know, and doing all the stuff, and uh, all of a sudden, the back door opened, and the old churches back then had an aisle like this and an aisle like that, and uh, he's up here preaching along, and the back door flies open. And here comes young Sam, about 14 years old, riding a mule right down the middle of the church, <laughs> rode that mule right up on the platform, across behind his, uh, and back down this side and out the back door, and left the whole place in a flurry of confusion <laughs> and <laughs> bewilderment. And his buddy said, what in the world, Sam? What, what? And his grandfather said, what possessed you to do such a thing? He says, well, I just despise a dull time. And that was his. I just, you know, and church to him was just a dull time because he had things going on in his head that needed a little excitement, you know. Now at the same time, he had uh, when his father went off to the Civil War, Captain John left him unfathered, and that's when he found out also he had a, a sickness or a malady, and the doctors prescribed for his sickness prescribed whiskey. Back then, it wasn't an uncommon thing. We'd just take so much whiskey for this, and sure enough, before, before you knew it, he be, had he had become sort of dependent upon his medicine, if you will. And now, he's, uh, he, uh, when, the, when Sherman comes in uh, to, uh, to burn the town, S- Sam, being an innovative, kind of an imaginative or a creative thinker, he says, well, I know Sherman's coming through, but he ain't getting the neighbor's horses. He collected everybody's horses and hid them away. And because of that, he got separated from his family that was running from the Civil War, and his father was fighting in the Civil War, so the stepmother, and her, so he, he's, now he's lost. He's alone 15 years old. And he makes his way, he says, if Sherman's going south, I'm going north. And he made his way all the way as far as to Nashville, Tennessee, and then in, into Kentucky and fell in love with a young girl named Laura McIlwain. And after the Civil War was over, he'd come back home, and he says, I got, I'm going to have to provide for my new bride, and I won't go get her until I can. And so with this amazing mind that he had, he had a photographic memory. He studied law at home for one year and passed the Georgia bar. He's now a lawyer after one year of home study. Photographic <laughs> memories are kind of important sometimes. Uh, I, I have a photographic memory, I've, I've just never put the film in. <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, <clears throat> IT'S ALWAYS MORE LIKE JUST A FLASH AND IT'S OVER. <laughs> <laughs> BUT uh, but it, HE, uh, so, it, SO HE GOES AND HE GETS HIS BRIDE AND HE co- BRINGS HER TO THE SOUTH, DOWN TO GEORGIA, CARTERSVILLE, GEORGIA. AND THERE HE uh, BECAME the SUCCESSFUL LAWYER OVERNIGHT AND IMMEDIATELY HE BEGAN BECAUSE OF A DEATH. THEY HAD A LITTLE GIRL AND HER NAME WAS Beulah, AND HE LOVED Beulah MORE THAN ANYBODY IN THE WORLD BECAUSE OF THIS NEW LITTLE GIFT OF WONDER and she died at one year old and uh the pain of that caused him to then begin to quickly drink himself down the ladder of success trying to deal with the pain and um and uh, and again he had an opportunity to to find the grace to go on and he and he couldn't and uh but that drunkenness destroyed their life really and uh and then on his father's deathbed he came to his father's deathbed, and his father looked at him, and all the children had gathered around, and he said, uh, and his father said, uh, he blessed all the children, and spoke a blessing over them, and he got to Sam, and he said, Sam, you have brought me down to my grave in sorrow, and he said, uh, make me a promise that you'll find the grace to change, and Sam loved his father so much that he fell across his father's deathbed, across his father, and he began to weep. And he began to cry out, and God met him there at his father's deathbed, and he rose up from there changed. Mm -hmm. And he went and told his grandfather, said grandfather, after the funeral, he says on Sunday night, he said I want to go to church with you, and they're riding in the horse and buggy going to church. And you got to remember that Samuel Gamble's wife was they called her Grandma Edwards. And she had prayed for years and years and years. She read the entire Bible. She would get on her knees, hold the Bible. And they said in church, in the old Methodist church, that she would she wore the old-fashioned clothes. Well, in the 1800s, what would have been old-fashioned? You know? <laughs> yeah. But old-fashioned hobnail boots, and she would hold the Bible, and she would walk the aisles and shout and pray, old-shouting Methodists. And an old southern-shouting Methodists sound like, whoo! They'd just holler and pray and go, you know, and just and, and it had mourner's bench. They'd go cry unto the Lord and pray and pray and pray. They said, but every day she would pray on her knees and shout. She would read the word of God and oh God applied to the to Sammy. There was a foundation of prayer thing that was setting things in motion that he wasn't even fully aware of. And she was Grandma Edwards, which means Jonathan Edwards was her great 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 grandfather. So there was prayer and, and preaching and power in the whole family blood. And Sam was the only one that had run from God. All the uncles, all the brothers, everybody else were preachers. But not this rattlehead. I despise a dull time. <laughs> Until that day, and not long after that, oh, he told his grandfather, he said, I think I'm called to preach. So they pulled up at the church that night. Grandfather walks up on the podium and he says, well, Sammy has given his heart to Jesus, and he told me that he's called to preach. So, Sammy, just come on up here. <laughs> and, and right there, he turned it over to him. And Sam walked up there, you know, and he, said, he says, well, he read a, read a scripture. And then he says, now, I don't know anything about that scripture that I just read. All I can really tell you is, is, is God is good, and I'm happy. <laughs> And he said, with the with the with the help of the Lord, and he just genuinely, authentically, just shared the story of what had happened in his life, and people started getting up and coming up and giving their hearts to Jesus. And you know, I think one of the things that's missing in Christianity today is because our lives fall apart with different tra- tragedies and stuff, or our lives fall apart and we're out there trying to live our lives <laughs> out of our own giftings and and greatness. Our people's lives they fall apart. And what do they do? They go to churches and try to find a Christian philosophy that will help them through the the traumas of life. And they don't go to a cross, don't go to to an altar. I know it sounds old-fashioned, but whatever happened to somebody getting saved, man? Whatever happened to somebody giving their heart to Jesus and being able to mark their life from that moment forward? I was changed into a new creation. Old things passed away. I'm still working through stuff, but you know I can mark the day that I got, I got saved in a puddle of beer at a rock and roll dance in the middle of a song called Inagata de Via," in August 1971, I got saved. And my life was marked from that day forward. It wasn't about Christian philosophy, and if you do these eight things and these 12 things, it was about Jesus, a redeemer, a savior, becoming in, coming into my life. I'll, I'll be your God. You'll be mine, and I'll be in your midst. Something changed, and that's what happened with Sam. Mm-hmm. Now, i got to tell you a, a, a little bit of the rest of the story. He did go into the ministry, and pretty soon it, it, it really got crazy because he went and told Laura he was going to go become a preacher. I didn't marry a preacher. I married a lawyer. And he said, well, I, I already told the Lord. He says, if I was any obstacles in my life, I told him to take them out of the way because I'm going to give my life to the, and, and call to the ministry. And so they had a big knockdown drag out over that, big argument. And in the middle of the night, for some reason, she has something happen to her physically that she thought she was dying, some sort of a seizure or something. And he wakes up, the next, he just told her, he says, well, you can do whatever you need to do. Tomorrow I'm going to Atlanta, see if they accept me in the ministry. And he did. He, he got up the next morning. He's getting ready to leave. He smells homemade biscuits cooking downstairs. goes walking in the kitchen, and she has this wonderful breakfast fixed for him. And she's, he says, What's going on here? And she said, I just want you to know that I had some kind of encounter with death last night. And I just want you to know you go on to Atlanta and, and you come back a minister, I will be the best minister's wife I can possibly be, but I'm never going to play piano. (laughs) So the lines were drawn. (laughs) And he went, and they gave him a church up in the, up in the Van Wert charge, circuit. The poorest place, because he's not a trained preacher, we'll stick him up there and all these Civil War orphans he'll do fine, just old people and Civil War orphans, it'll be fine. And you know the rest of the story. He went there, and God did amazing things in that place, in a place called Rockmart. I've been in that old church many times. And, there, and behind it are about 3,000 graves of Welsh people. It's a Welsh mining community. And now all the graveyard is Welsh, all the names are Welsh, and he's a Jones. So he's carrying, you know, how many, any, any Jones here? Yeah, I've got Jones. Uh, and so that, there's more, in Wales, there's more Jones than there are trees, you know, and it's because of uh, you know. Okay, that's another story. But anyway, but anyway, now he finds himself going on into the ministry and raising up orphanages in Decatur, Georgia, and so on. And then he then he gets a call to Nashville, Tennessee, because Nashville, Tennessee is trying to rebuild itself after the Civil War. A lot of drunkenness and a lot of it's just horrible. Place. And the ministers in Nashville are not having any any success at all trying to rebuild that culture. And uh, I heard about this hayseed from Georgia, is over in Memphis preaching meetings there, and hundreds of people got saved. And, and they you know, he's over there preaching the hellfire and all, and, and, and you know, knocking the crockery around. And he said, we ought to just invite him to come to Nashville. Maybe he'd help. And so he sends a, they send him a telegraph, would you come and preach in Nashville? Yes. What would you require to come and preach in Nashville? Oh, nothing really, but I do want a 5,000 seat tent. If you could provide a 5,000 seat tent. Well, all of the ministerial association thought, well, who is this egotistical maniac that thinks he can draw 5,000 people in Nashville, Tennessee? And he said, I don't think it's about my ego, it's about my expectations. I believe God wants to do something in Nashville, the, the great Athens of the South, the educational center that has gone down because of the, the, the ravages of the Civil War. I believe God is going to do something in Nashville. And they said, absolutely not. He said, I'll tell you what, let me come and preach on one Sunday in your churches, and then let's make the, the call and the judgment whether or not we feel like it would merit a 5,000 seat tent. And so they took him on the, on the challenge. He shows up. And he walks into McKendree Methodist Church that morning, the big uptown Methodist Church. Nobody expected it, but, I mean, this guy was not posh. He walks in with plaid against stripes and, you know, wrinkles, bow tie, and he just walks in just looks like some, what they call a drummer, a salesman on the train. And he comes walking in, and they don't know which, kind of don't know who's the preacher, and this guy walks up, and he it, takes his coat off, and he throws it down. He says, Now, I know there's going to be a, some, so a fight here. It's going to be a battle, and I'm going to say a thing or two to go ahead and get it started, if you don't mind. <laughs> and I know when I leave here, y'all are going to be talking about me, saying all kinds of sorriness about me. And I'll just go ahead, and we'll just prime that, if you don't mind. I know some of you long-tongued heifers, you could sit in the living room and lick a <laughs> skillet in the kitchen. And I know the things that you're going to say, and it says, "But if you can say worse things about me than I can about you, just jump in anytime you want to jump in." But I know that there's there's 81 saloons in this town, and 60 of them are run by church members. And you're wondering why the place why the place can't change. And you're not, and he starts just just blasting the place. And all these old women are, oh, oh. And (laughs) and it said, it didn't get one amen out of the amen corner. There was just double grunts. (laughs) And they said the media was there. And they were capturing all of this crazy scene that that, that had just happened. And because this is the Athens of the South, one of the great educational centers filled with academia. But not this morning, because this hay from Georgia stirred everything up. And he walked out, and he left, and got on a train the next day and left, and the media went crazy with it, trying to figure out, you know, the the vulgarities and the vicissitudes brought into the pulpit of the great Athens of the South. You know, so it created so much conflict that the whole town was in a whirl, and the ministers are now getting together trying to figure out what to do, because people want him to come back. We can't bring somebody like that back here. We'll be the laughingstock of America. And sure enough, in that meeting, they were all saying, no, and there was one old guy sitting at the table. He named W. H. Jackson, General W. H. Jackson from the Civil War, Confederate General. He stands up and he says, well, I know, and he owns all the horses in Belmont, big deal. He says, now I know he said some things that he shouldn't have said, but he said some things that had to be said. Now, y'all can argue all you want to, but I'm going to go ahead and buy the tent and we're bringing Sam Jones back and we'll just see what God will do. That was in March, and then May 10th, the train rolls in. Sam steps off of the train, and there are 10,000 people that cannot get in the tent, waiting to see what's gonna happen. And this Hayseed from Georgia, in his down-home English, he just stood up with all that Welsh blood flowing through his veins, and he began to preach and speak the Word of God out of sincerity and had uh, the, the old Southernisms and the, you know, the, all the old uh, cliches, Southernisms and sayings that come through his blood. And there he was, he just preached an honest gospel, and God began to move. And in a few days, the whole town of Nashville, Tennessee, was in revival. Wow. And there was a, there was a, a riverboat captain and a, who owned all the saloons. He owned 35, 35 steamboats with all the saloons on those. He, he was kind of like a mafioso boss, really. And he owned all the saloons in downtown Broadway. And he, real, he, he realizes, wait a minute, what's happening here? We're losing all of our clientele. The gambler, There's nobody gambling. And there's nobody drinking. And all the bro, our brothels are closing. There's nobody to broth. <laughs> what are we going to do? And so, he go, and, and they tell him, oh, it's, that, it's that Georgia preacher. He's gonna he's he's gonna sink us if we don't do something. Well, let's get rid of him. He said, "All right." And so he gets his thugs, and he go he's gonna go to the meeting. And at the end, their their plan is is to Sam Jones is leaving town one way or the other. And so they go walking into the tent, and there's all the prostitutes singing in the choir. There's <laughs> all the gamblers, or the ushers. The whole there's thousands of people there. And there's a little boy catches Sam Jones coming onto the stage, and he stops him and he says, Mr. Jones, little newspaper boy, Mr. Jones, there's some men's that's come here to whoop you tonight, and I just want you to know, oh, thank you, and he thanked him for He said, I appreciate it. And Sam Jones walks out on the front of the stage, and he says, now, I, uh, this is the way the service started. Now, I understand some fellers have come here to whoop me tonight, <laughs> and I want you to know, that I weigh 135 pounds, but 132 and a half of it is backbone. <laughs> so if you'll just meet me right over here by this tent post, and you, when I get done preaching, I'll welcome the exercise. <laughs> and then he turns around and he starts preaching. Now, there's a Welshman for you, right? Now, and and he gets about three fourths of the way through the message and looks up, and here this riverboat captain's sitting back there in the back with his r- rowdies. This guy stands up and he comes walking right down the aisle and the whole place goes silent and nobody knows what's going to happen. And he stops about two-thirds of the way up and Sam walks over to the front of the stage and this guy says, Sam Jones, I'm the feller that come here to whoop you tonight, but I want you to know that you have whooped me with the gospel of the Lord Jesus and I want you to know that I give my heart to God this night and I give my hand to you as a friend if you'll have me. And Sam walked over and knelt down and this fellow walked over and he took his hand and he prayed the prayer of salvation with this fellow. And they walked over now where they were going to fight. At the end of the meeting, they're standing over there and this fellow says, Sam Jones, if you'll come back here and preach to all these people in this town that the churches don't want. If you'll keep doing what you do, you won't have to do it in a tent. I will build a place for you to preach to these people that everybody has thrown away. And he walked, and they, and they shook hands, and, he, and this man walked out, and I told all of his saloon keepers, and he, they telegraphed all the 35 steamboats, all whiskey overboard. <laughs> he took all of the saloons, they rolled all the whiskey in big barrels out, put props under them, got the whole lower Broadway full of whiskey barrels and big heaps of them, and knocked the props out of them and rolled all of those whiskey barrels right into the Cumberland River. They say that's why the fish jumped so high today in the, Cumber- <laughs> in the Cumberland River. And and you know what he, what he did is starting the next day, he brought all wag- wagons, wagon loads of food and help and, he, and he, they put uh, Vanderbilt ministry students on every one of the wagons. And they would play these old pump organs and sing hymns and up and down lower broad, handing out food. And it closed all of those, uh, they became temperance halls to help people get, get past the pain of the Civil War and all the drunkenness and the poverty and the, and the destitution that was in the streets. For 18 years that happened. On every steamboat, there was a ministry student, a, a chaplain put on every steamboat. The river was full of revival. For eighteen years, Sam went ahead and left there, and not long after and that was the beginning of a, of a launch into the nation. He wound up leaving there not long after that this was February of eighteen eighty six then by February he had made it to Cincinnati where D.L. Moody had already declared that 's the evangelist graveyard, and there will never be a revival in Cincinnati it's just too rough a place That's, It was like a real hard industrial. You know, like the reputation of Newcastle in the old days when it was so harsh and industrial, and when D. L. Moody and those guys came, and thousands were saved in the midst in 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 Newcastle. Newcastle was the first place they had to start giving tickets to get into the meetings. And they'd say, they would walk up in the street and they'd say, Moody Sankey tickets. And, and, and he said, I want one, I want one. He said, are, are you a Christian? You say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, you don't get one then. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, are you a Christian? No. Well, here's your ticket. I mean, that's, imagine what that would have been like. The power of the gospel coming forth, shaping culture. Like, But anyway, he winds up in Cincinnati. Well, he preached for five or six days, nothing happening. Dr. Joyce, pastor of the church, all the ministerial committee got together and says, well, D.L. Moody was right. There's no... No revival in Cincinnati, even though it's happening everywhere else. And, uh, and Sam came into the meeting when they were talking about closing it down, and he just come walking in, didn't even know what they were saying. He says, and they said, Sam, we're looking at uh, what our situation here. He said, yeah, me too. I'll tell you what we're going to do. He says, we're going to go rent the Cincinnati Music Hall because God's going to do something in Cincinnati. They couldn't get 20 people in the meeting. And this crazy guy from Georgia says, oh, let's go get the Cincinnati, all of them walked out except Dr. Joyce. And he says, Sam, let's go get the Cincinnati Music Hall. They went and rented it. And within a few days, there's 10,000 people standing shoulder to shoulder in the meetings. People can't even get in the seats. 700 people a day getting saved in the Cincinnati Music Hall. And then after a few days of that, here comes a blizzard that blows in in February, and said, that'll end the revival. They didn't know how, to, if, you know, that, that will surely shut down the revival. Sam rolled in in that buggy that night, and they looked. There were 10,000 people in the room, and there were 40,000 people standing knee-deep in the snow trying to hear the Word of God in any way that they could hear it. And, uh, and a wonderful thing actually happened, historically true. D.L. Moody was passing through on a train and heard somebody talking about the meeting and went there and they had to sneak him in the back door and they, as they were carrying Sam over the top <laughs> of ever, just to get him to the stage to where, where he could speak that night. And, uh, and Sam gave years and years and years. became the most famous man in America. When he died October 15, the day before his 59th birthday, October 15, 1906, Now let me back up just a second to Nashville, what happened in 1904. That riverboat captain who built that place, it was called Union Gospel Tabernacle. In 1904, the Union Gospel Tabernacle was a place where revival was continually being held. People getting saved right and left, experiencing God. God was in their midst. He He was their God, and they were his people, and he was in their midst. That's what was going on. And, and, and this riverboat captain uh, sustained an injury in a buggy wreck coming down 2nd Avenue, if you can imagine. Traffic was bad back then, too, evidently. But he, he died. And so the day before Christmas in 1904, they're having his funeral, his memorial service, in that old Union Gospel Tabernacle. Sam Jones was officiating, and he said, I believe, and he and he's had such a way of communicating the word, he says, today. I walk, I, I, I walk into the garden of my own heart and I pick the rarest and sweetest flower there and I lay it upon the grave of this man who's done so much for so many. And he said, I believe it would honor the Lord if we all just changed the name of this from the Union Gospel Tabernacle, this place that he built for the gospel to be heard. Why don't we honor what God did in his life and let's change the name of this to honor him And they they changed the name of the auditorium to the Ryman Auditorium, the home of the Grand Ole Opry. The music that went all over the world came from the stage of two, and look what it was, it was marketplace ministry and a man with a mission. And that covenant friendship and brotherhood says, you know what, we're going to live our lives bigger than the church. We're going to go after, we're going to build the kingdom. And they did. And, and, and look what happened out of that. And then in 1906, Sam was coming out of a, out of a meeting in Oklahoma City. And uh, having, uh, and uh, he was on a train, and, and, it, and he, he uh, spied a, a young uh, a, a couple trying to make their way to Memphis in poverty, and she was upset. Her husband was dying, and he, so he sat up all night. The most famous man in America. He sat up all night. And he said, now, sweetie, you go on and get some sleep, and I'll take care of your husband and so you can get some rest because when we get to Memphis, you know, uh, y'all are going to be on your own then. And uh, Sam had just come from meetings in, in Boston where all of the, they knew Boston would be a failure because that's where the, all the academics and the intellectual elites gather around all the universities. And there he was speaking to, to the intellectual elites of the day in Boston. And they said, that'll be a failure. 40,000 a day, sitting four meetings a day, shoulder to shoulder for 30 days, listening to the amazing mind and imagination and purity of heart and, 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 and just revival. Came to Boston. And, and the, you know what they called him in the newspapers? The, the wonder of the ages. He was just a hayseed from Georgia that one day said, in coming years and thundering tones, the whole world is going to hear of Sam P. Jones. And out of the genuine prayer of an old grandmother that prayed on her knees and declared word, and a self-fulfilled prophecy, he began to move in the power that he was created for. And now he, he, he walks onto the stage in Oklahoma City and he stands up in the pulpit. Now he's, he's like a seasoned general in ministry by then. And he stands up. A very different man. And he says, he said, I'm telling you now, I'm telling you before my voice ceases to ring out an echo in your ears, there's going to be death. And he preached a message called sudden death and talked about all those men down through the years that had, had scoffed the word of God and, and, and then died in some crazy situation without God. And you could hear the passion and the love in his heart. He wasn't criticizing and judging people. He was saying, "Don't live this life without him." Is what he was saying, yeah. and then he walked out of there. and He says, "He goes, 'Cause I'm telling you, across this audience, I'm telling you now, there'll be, there'll be deaths that's going to shock this room. It'll shock this new state of Oklahoma, and it'll shock this nation.'" And the next day, he got <laughs> on a train, and he and his, he and his Miss, Miss Laura and all the kids were there. And they got on the train and started heading home to get home for his birthday party because he had already killed the turkey in Cartersville, Georgia. And he's trying to make it home. And he sat up all night with that man, that dying man. And he went in and told his assistant, says, Listen, now, when we get to Memphis and these people have to get off the, plan- get off the train, make sure that they have provision to get home and make sure that, they- that she has provision to live at least the next five years of her life. And just out of, in Murfreesboro, Kentucky, when he, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, when he preached there, all, almost everywhere he preached, all the saloons would close down because of the revival that would happen. All the saloons closed. You know what he did? He took all of the offering from the meetings and gave it all to the saloon keepers because now they're going to be out of work and they won't be able to provide for their family. The most famous man in America. But you didn't hear about all those things. Y'all only heard of the criticisms of big meetings because of of what he had done. But after he served that dying man, he went in and sat down and he asked the porter, could you bring me a cup of hot water? Because he always drank a cup of hot water in the morning to deal with his pain. And when the porter brought the hot water back, Sam's head was bowed and he had gone to heaven outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. And the whole nation was stunned. And what they did is they, the word went out across the nation and every place the train would go, they had his picture on the front of the train called the Sam Jones Special. And there on the front of the train, or, or it, when the train was coming, 20 minutes before the train would arrive in every town or village or hamlet across America, they would begin to ring the bell. And thousands of people lined the tracks with hat in hand to honor the man who had given so much. He'd given it all. And it's, it is, they just so, said, a soldier comes home. Uh, and he, and, uh, you know, those are the, tell his wondrous works and his awesome deeds. That's a whole lot better than a Schwarzenegger movie, blowing up buildings. <laughs> is it not? That's, those are the stories that need to be told. Um, I know it's, it's been long and, and it's been hot in here, but, I'm, but I, I've, I wanted to tell some of his wondrous works and his mighty deeds. What, what, is, what is our story? Which ones y'all are, are just kind of a little bit dull with church? We need to get a mule in here. <laughs> we, need to, we need to live holy sanctified lives. It says, I despise a dull time. I despise the way Jesus is being represented in a generation. I despise the professionalism of what has become whatever this thing is. Let's get Jesus back in the middle of this. Let's get God's glory back in the middle. Of it. Let's get genuine, authentic life being lived out loud about the wonder of who he is. We, and uh, So, Lord, I thank you for the lives that we, can, that we can look back to. But more than that, Lord, I thank you for the lives that we can look forward to that are carrying your greatness the seeds of your greatness and the young ones that are coming up that will that will refuse to, to be a part of a dull time in the glory of God so so Lord I pray that as a prayer I, I declare it as a prophecy over this house I declare it as, as a prophecy over our sons and our daughters I declare it as a prayer over those that, that will come behind us Lord let us be the ones that that carries the power of prayer to awaken them. Prayer and worship is supposed to be dressed in the language, languages that best suit our truest heart, or sing our truest heart. And Lord, our truest heart is, is we want, we want to see your glory in, on those levels again. So Lord, I, I, I thank you that there's, there, there's something sacred about looking back. There's something beautiful about looking forward. and There's something absolutely worthless and unnecessary about the dullness of life. Lord, let us live the radiance of who you are in our lives. Let your glory arise upon your people, Lord. Let your glory be seen and known and understood to be something that is supernatural. Lord, let let us hear the birds on the the leaves, birds in the limbs. Let us hear and see the things in the Spirit that will make a difference, Lord. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, God bless y'all. That old Ryman Auditorium, what happened was is they took the Grand Ole Opry out to Opryland and left that old building down there for a lot of years. It was closed. And then they reopened it as an old music hall. And it's an amazing place. It built at the same time as Carnegie Hall and all that. And it's, Everybody in the world's played there. <clears throat> And they, they rebuilt, did a refurb on it, and reopened it. How many of you knew about that? This things reopened. And on the 10th anniversary of the reopening of the Ryman Auditorium, they decided to celebrate its beginning. And so they they are going to have this big event at the Ryman Auditorium, and all the Grand Ole Opry stars and all the, you know, the big stars and megastars, they're all going to be there. And on a Sunday morning, they're all going to sing hymns because they've realized that it was what it was, and so they're going to have this big gala event, and, all, and they, they ask if I would come and spe- be the speaker for this thing, so I get there, and here you have all the who's who in the music business singing hymns, and I'm supposed to be the storyteller who tells the story of the, the building, and so I stand up, and I start telling them the story of Sam Jones, In 1847, four baby boys were born, and tell them the story. And I get way down into the story, and then they start realizing, I said, there are three tabernacles, the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of David, that generation of creativity and so on. And then there's a tabernacle, and this used to be the the old union gospel tabernacle. And out of that, I began to talk about how the music of the place, the creativity that came off that stage touched the world. And and then I realized, wait a minute, you know, if it... this may be the only time in my whole life that I get to talk in front of this many big shots in my whole life. And here are all the historians and the Vanderbilt professors and the, and the, the music business and Hollywood stars. All the Hollywood people are there, too. And I said, you know, I may never get to speak in the front of a bunch like this for the rest of my life. And I said, so right now, I'll, you know, we know this was founded for the gospel, and so right now, if there's anybody here, and I, I said, now, right now with every head raised and every eye open and everybody looking around, and they're going to see you if you raise your hand or you respond, and I, and I gave an invitation, and people started standing and responding, hundreds of people all across that audience that day. Gave their heart to Jesus. And what I did not know, it was also being broadcast live over WSM 650 Clear Channel across America. And there were people calling in the radio station, pulling their cars over. They were weeping at rest areas before the Lord. And, and I said, because of the anointing and the grace, it was only these two guys' lives. And there was a building here built to remember the mighty acts of God. This structure will always be an instrument that tells the story of the marvelous acts of God. And the reason I'm telling you this part of it is, is I know that this used to be a Salvation Army. There is something still waiting to be untapped. There is a well that's waiting to be dug here, that will, that will release and project a very different message to this generation is still waiting in the desires of God, in the atmospheres that you guys are here sustaining as a remnant, and you're holding this atmosphere in prayer. You're holding it for prophecy. You're holding it for the promises of God to still be realized in this region. This is not, this is not an old thing that went away. This is a thing that's been, been held precious as a treasure, waiting for the day that it speaks again. Just like that was, you know, two. What was it? Two, three weeks ago, uh, uh, they were doing a big thing at the Ryman Auditorium again, and they asked me to come to do the storytelling thing just two weeks ago. And 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 th- and and by the way, this story that I told you to, tonight is about to become a movie. They're turning it into a movie to tell the story of what God did through two two guys' lives. You know, you see the antagonist and the conflict and all that, but you see what God did on the other side of it. So, you know, just be praying that, that this, that carry all of the wonder of what God did in those days. But I, but I didn't want to leave here without saying, I believe there's something here. Yeah. Yes. And, I, and I, I just really pay attention to it in prayer, and I would hold it in a place of precious treasure not any sort of presumption and to make something happen, but I just I just sometimes something just needs to be spoken in such a way to set it in motion. So anyway, God bless you y'all. I'm sorry it went so long tonight, but